Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB. And on this week's show, we have a conversation with R.O. Kwan and Garth Greenwell, editors of Kink, a new volume of short stories from writers including Alexander Chi, Larissa Pham, Brandon Taylor, and Roxane Gay, forthcoming from Simon & Schuster in February. I'm joined on this conversation with Boris Draluk, LARB's editor-in-chief, as part of a special episode for the LARB Book Club. And without further ado, let's get straight to the show. Greetings, LARB Book Clubbers and radio listeners. I'm Boris Draluk, editor-in-chief of the LA Review of Books, and my co-host for this session is Eric Newman, LARB's gender and sexuality editor, as well as one of the eloquent voices behind LARB's radio hour. Today we'll be discussing an original, often moving, always thought-provoking, and I'm trying my darndest not to say titillating, collection of stories called Kink, which features the work of Melissa Phoebos, Chris Kraus, Alexander Chi, Zane Jukadar, Larissa Pham, and the two co-editors, R.O. Kwan, whose best-selling debut The Incendiaries appeared in 2018, and Garth Greenwell, author of the prize-winning what Belongs to You, and of Cleanness, which appeared last year. As the collection's unabashed title suggests, the stories Quan and Greenwell have gathered aim to break through the taboos surrounding sexual kink and other modes and expressions of love and desire that, as they write in their brief introduction, often pathologized in popular culture, flattened, simplified, and turned into a joke, a cause for only shame. There's nothing flat about this collection, and we're thrilled to have Aro and Garth in our virtual studio to talk about it. So I've always viewed anthologies as opportunities to have a piece of writing speak twice, both on its own terms and as part of a larger narrative. And sometimes that larger narrative develops as the pieces come together and it develops in surprising directions. In your intro, you write, Aro, that that the inspiration for King came to you at McDowell, that there was this kind of flash of recognition between two stories. Could you tell us a little bit about the book you envisioned in that moment? And has the book that emerged surprised you in some ways? Sure. Well, first of all, that's such a beautiful way of putting it, this idea of, I love that way of thinking about anthology. I was at an artist residency at McDowell when I read Garth's story, which is reprinted in the anthology. I read that for the first time in the Paris Review. And I was also reading, like right after that, I also happened to read Melissa's book, First Book Whip Smart. And I don't think I necessarily went into thinking about an anthology, thinking about a book with a narrative for myself in terms of what I hoped the book would be. I think something that was actually really important to both me and Garth was letting, not letting, but keeping the book open to however people might define kink for themselves, however people might define being kinky in a story, in a piece of fiction. And so in those ways, the book did end up surprising me, but I didn't go into it with a narrative for it. Can you kind of talk about how you defined kink at the beginning of putting this collection together and then how kind of as you pulled the various pieces together, that conception either opened up or changed in any way for either of you? Well, I mean, so it was really clear to us from our first conversations about the book that one of the things we wanted to really resist doing was attempting to put a definition on kink or to draw lines or to place ourselves in a position to sort of say what counts as kink, what doesn't count as kink. As we started talking to writers we were hoping would be interested in the project, we made it really clear that we were interested in fiction that as the writer conceived it, 
had kink as a kind of subject matter or object of concern or contemplation. Mm. So, I mean, I'm not super interested in definitions of kink. And any, I find myself really struggling to speak even in the most general terms because the minute we start saying things like non-normative sexual practices, we've kind of fallen into the trap of paradigms that I don't accept and don't want to seem to accept. I mean, a characteristic of kinky sexual activity maybe is not taking for granted what sex needs to look like. Like maybe a way of making explicit the staging of sex negotiations about sexual practices. One of the things that I think is really fascinating about kink, both sort of in the world and as a contribution it can make to culture more broadly, and then also as a device in fiction, is that it foregrounds often conversations about sex, conversations about consent, and it makes visible and performative aspects of sex that I think sometimes, well, not, I mean, very clearly in the general culture, we're struggling to figure out how to talk about things like consent and what consent means Mm. and how conversations about consent are sexy and how conversations about sex can be themselves part of sexual relations. And these are all kind of gifts that I think kink communities can give the broader culture. And then there are also things that I think fiction makes fiction centered on kink interesting. That's a brilliant response. I completely agree that those conversations are so striking in each one of these stories, these negotiations. And it brings to the fore something that you also mentioned in your in your introduction, which is that sexual encounters and sexuality in general is a kind of language. It's a complex act of communication. And what struck me in reading these stories is that the conversations around sex, the negotiations, are fairly clear, clear and detailed, whereas the encounters themselves are fruitfully ambiguous. People come away with completely different ideas about what has happened in many ways. And that too, I think, is really productive as an exploration of the way language works. You know, in Garth's story, it becomes explicit with Bulgarian as a language. Maybe you can talk a little bit more about that, both of you, because both of you have experiences with other languages. Is there a parallel between the language of sexuality and language learning or translation? Goodness well, gracious, I, mean, I love these questions. Yeah. They're really good questions. Yeah, what do you think? I keep finding that this doesn't always happen. I keep finding that with each of these questions, they spark so many thoughts that I almost want to like sit with them for half an hour and think about it. <laughs> but, that makes um, me a terrible you're... interviewer. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is glorious. This is glorious. I love this. I love this. I love it a lot. Let's see. Sex and kink as a language. Maybe I'll just, I'm just going to say for now that I love that a lot. And to tie that back to what Garth was saying about kink being more open to other definitions other than like dominant narratives about what sex is. Kink opening up those spaces, I think is really important and really exciting. And, you know, like as a queer woman, I feel as I'm already very conscious of living in a body that is not necessarily alive to dominant narratives about what sex is and Mm -hmm. what sexuality is. And so, yeah, I'll stop there for now. Yeah. And I guess I would add, you know, I do think translation and one of the reasons that sort of languages and imperfectly understood languages are so fascinating to me is that I do think that they make visible aspects of any human communication, aspects of, you know, questions of interpretation and misprision 
that really like, it's really hard to communicate. And I think sort of communicating between languages makes that difficulty really clear. I also really love what you say about the idea of sex as a language. And, you know, something that I've been thinking about is RO and I have these conversations is sometimes I think we find ourselves pushing back a little bit against assumptions that are made about the affective significance or even the significance more broadly of certain gestures or certain acts. So the idea that if one person slaps another person or if one person spits on another person, that that must be cruel, that must be degrading, that must be, you know, to read that in sort of as if those actions or gestures have a specific pinned meaning. But in fact, one of the things that is so exciting and brilliant about kink is that it can take gestures like that and put them into a syntax that radically changes their meaning. So that in fact, no, like, I mean, I found myself saying at one point in an interview, like, you don't get to tell someone what that action means because, you know, within the frame of the SM experience or the kinky experience, like within this act of meaning making that these two people or more are engaged in together, they make those meanings. So you don't get to assign acts meaning. And that's something that I think is really important that all of the stories in the anthology kind of get at in various ways. Absolutely. I think that's quite right. I am interested, you know, especially as you were talking, Aro, about, you know, your experience as a queer woman and Garth, you know, you have also talked about this in terms of your experience as a gay man and as like a gay man myself, it it strikes me that the collection does have like a significant kind of queer presence. And I really like what you say, Aro, about the kind of queerness kind of invites you to a body that I don't know. I think about it oftentimes as like queerness invites you to a body and a set of sexual encounters that don't necessarily have a script. I'm not saying that there are scripts, right? Like anybody that watches porn, you know, and that's part of porn's pedagogical function in both good and bad ways is that it does give you scripts. But there is a kind of sense that I've always found in queer circles where the body is suddenly a little bit loose, both from signifiers to pick up what you were saying, Garth. I'm, now I'm thinking... <laughs> of the different other ways in which that could signify. But in terms of like signifiers and also these kind of relationships of power, right? So where in many ways actually, and I think this is not necessarily clear from the outside, but that it is the submissive oftentimes who has the real power in any kind of BDSM relationship. That it's like in the kind of classic Masuk sense, you know, you, that's the one that writes the contracts, that's the one that determines the rules. So can you talk a little bit about, I've thrown so much stuff on the table here, but the interplay between queerness, power, and kind of reinscribing meanings around those poles in this work and in kind of the representation of kink more generally? This is honestly so exciting for me. I love um, I love when an answer um, I haven't been thinking several times when I love when a question asks me to reshape my thoughts a bit. Let's see, which is what a conversation should be, right? Like that's like my ideal for a conversation. I would first of all to the first part of your question. I mean, it was really important for me in terms of thinking about this book that the book be. I mean, you know, it's every book has limited space. We couldn't do everything, but it was really important that the book be very inclusive. Like it was important mm -hmm. that 
we have more queer writers than not. It was important that we have more writers of color than not. It was more important that we have more women than not. But to be honest, the queer part, I, I mean, maybe this is part of, I live in San Francisco, you know, like most mm. of my friends are artists. At this point, I am genuinely surprised when a new friend turns out to be straight. Like, I'm just like, <laughs> like, I'm genuinely like, are you, are you sure about that? Like, you, you don't have to be. Like, it's, it's, like, that's like such a, that's so part of my life that it, I feel as though having more queer writers than not, just like it happened so organically too. Like it was important, but it also happened so organically. But no, I think there is a long tradition of perhaps more queer people than not being involved in kinky spaces and being open to kinky experiences. And surely that has something to do with the extent to which we have had to be a little bit more open to narratives that don't exist or that exist in very limited forms. And I think part of what was really exciting to me about this book and about putting it together was just one of my greatest hopes for people reading this book would be that maybe for people who are ashamed of things they want, whatever that might be. I think it must be true. I've heard people joke this and I think it might actually be true. If you can imagine a kink, it exists and there's somebody who wants it. And if you can imagine, and if you want it, then most likely there's somebody else out there who also wants what you want in a way where it can correspond. And I just, I would love for more, for the people who read this book, I would love for there to just be less shame around what we want. And for it to be more possible that if your body wants something, then maybe that desire is something to be honored. Maybe it's something to be even treasured. Well, what you say about shame is very powerful and moving, and it brings to mind another question. In the introduction, you say that a book like this hasn't been published in a long time, and that got me to thinking, I don't know of another book like this quite. And that brought another question to mind, which was, what was your first encounter with a story of this kind as a person growing up, as a person mm -hmm. discovering your own sexuality? What was your first encounter with literature that addressed topics that opened doors for you of this kind? There's a quote by Baldwin too. So I assume that Baldwin might figure into Garth's or R.O.'s answer, but is there anything that opened doors for you in that way? It's interesting to try to think back. I think maybe my first sort of encounter or my first memory of having my mind blown by kind of what literary fiction could do in terms of representing sex might have actually been reading Jeanette Winterson, who was someone I found in Kentucky at an independent bookstore that had a little gay and lesbian section. And I just pulled a book off the shelf randomly and it was written on the body. And reading that was really mind blowing. And yeah, so that might be my... And there's something deeply kinky about that book in the way that it plays with the question of gender and gendered bodies and what it means mm. to write sex really explicitly while occluding sort of the usual, on the part of the narrator, the usual sort of signs of sexed bodies and of gendered selves. And so that, that feels kind of kinky, maybe. So maybe that was my experience of literary kink my first experience yeah Jeanette Winterson was definitely an early one too and I love that book I I'm going to word this very carefully I think my first experience of coming across sex and literature has to have been the bible man Song of Solomon's man I know people who in different not in the denomination I grew up in but I know people who like Song of Solomon's was like torn out of their bibles you were only allowed to access it once you were like in your 20s the Bible is just like soaked through with the lingo. Oh, sorry, I, I didn't mean that as like a double entendre. Um, <laughs> the Bible is full of sexual language and imagery and the language of abandon is, I think, very tied to the language of sex. I had a big crush on the Shulamite as well. 
but that you know the song of solomon the song of songs is a song and one thing that i'm sorry i'm taking eric's place here but another thing that occurred to me is that an anthology of poetry of kink would also be a very rich and fertile project maybe you can speak a little bit to that did you consider that at all if not then not why did you choose fiction as the vehicle both of you of course are fiction writers but did you ever give thought to a broader nonfiction poetry kind of anthology I mean, first of all, I think a poetry anthology would be incredible, as would a nonfiction anthology, as would a mixed genre anthology, as would another fiction anthology like this. Like, the more the merrier, man. But I guess, for me at least, it was just... And I love reading nonfiction poetry plays, all of it. I love reading all the things. However, fiction is my, like, first and true love. And that is where I feel the most alive. That's probably also where I feel more equipped to edit other people's work. So that would just be why. It's just that I really love fiction. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour on KPFK 90.7 FM, recorded remotely. Now, back to our conversation with Aro Kwan and Garth Greenwell, editors of Kink, a new collection of short fiction. I wanted to ask a, a kind of related question. There's, it, it happens in a number of stories, but there will be a, a moment when the narrator kind of addresses the failure of language to communicate the experience of the sexual encounter. And this, I think, to certainly anyone who has, I mean, writing is hard enough as it is, we can admit that, but that anybody who has even just, casually like had sex and then tried to describe what it was like to a friend, it encounters this slippage, right? This this failure of language at some point, right? There's I, I really love the way that Larissa Pham puts this when she's describing her narrator saying, she wishes she had more words for color, more words to describe how everything feels, right? And this is after she has, you know, both Larissa and the narrator have tried to articulate to us like what the after experience is like. Can you talk a little bit about that both in your own writing, the difficulty of translating the hyper and multidimensionally sensory experience of sex, right, kink or otherwise, into the somewhat plainer form of words? I want to defend words. Like I find myself, like, I immediately want to sort of push back and be like, wait, no, words are also kind of. So the question of the inadequacy of language, the inadequacy of language to describe anything. I mean, I am mm. of two minds about the difficulty of writing sex. And it's, they are utterly contradictory and I'm just not interested in resolving them. On one hand, it seems to me, on one hand, I want to make big claims for what sex can do in literature. And I want to claim that it offers a kind of privileged access to kinds of questions that I'm interested in about how people communicate with each other, about what embodied experience means, and about how bodies are situated in things like history and culture and language. So I want to claim that there is something special about writing sex on one hand. Um, and on the other hand, I want to say that actually writing about sex is exactly the same as writing about anything else. And mm. like writing about anything else, it's almost impossible. And that in fact, 
you know, trying to write something adequate to the experience of sex is no different than trying to write something adequate to the oatmeal I had this morning for breakfast. If one really takes seriously the kind of phenomenological burden of trying to put on the page what existence feels like. So I want to say both things. And that's utterly irresponsible because they they can't both be true except that they are. I love that a lot. And I wonder if, um, and no, it's so true. Like today I was working, I was, tr- I was trying to, trying to work on my novel um, while, while chunking the news every five minutes. <laughs> but um, I was like today, I was just spending some time. I was trying, just trying to get a character to like walk out the door and it was taking forever. Like she refused to move. And I was like, how do I even put this into words that feels like the experience of walking out the door? And it just like the entire enterprise felt impossible. And I feel so that's, that's my experience of writing anything is the ent- enterprise feels utterly impossible. Um, and anything that manages to happen is an absolute miracle. That said, I wonder if there's something to be said about, because historically, um, sex is seen as something that maybe is left um, sort of off the stage. You know, there's like the classic, there's just like the classic jump cut, or not a jump cut. Oh, the wind chiming. And break, yeah. you know, there's like, yeah, there's wind chiming, yeah. and then you lean down for a kiss, and then section break. Yeah. The next day. (laughs) And I think I'm always really excited about the prospect of how language can interact with the space that has been left relatively untouched by words. And so I think because it's been seen as taboo and or not serious and or not a subject fit for literature, I kind of look at that and I think, well, that's that means there's a lot of space to play. Like this is just like, yeah. a, that, that means this, that this is a, there's more space to play in a way that perhaps has not been, um, in, a, in a way that play has not perhaps happened in this way before. I think I, I must, what's coming to mind is how excited writers were when they started flying. James Wood talks about this in, in, some of, mm. in a couple of his reviews, just like the, he quotes like writers, the, the incredible excitement of writers like realizing, oh my God, nobody um, has ever described what it feels like to like take off in a plane. And yes, that's tired to us now, but for a while it was super fucking exciting. <laughs> it was, yeah. again, sort of relatively unbroken territory. And it's remarkable to think that, you know, a human flight is only just over a hundred years old, whereas sexuality <laughs> dates back a little bit further. A little bit further. <laughs> <laughs> just a little bit further. <laughs> I, mean, um, you know, I mean, it's also true. I mean, something that's really fascinating when you look at just sort of the history of writing about sex, you know, we are constantly losing and rediscovering resources for writing about sex. So, you know, mm. on one hand, you know, it does feel, or like one of the one of the most wonderful illustrations I, I know of someone discovering tools for writing sex is if you just read James Baldwin's novels from the first to the last, and sort of you see there is this ascent to glorious, explicitness in the late novels, whereas in, you know, in something like Giovanni's Room, there's nothing explicit, you know, I mean, it's all very misty. On the other hand, and that's, that's thrilling, and one does feel that sort of discoveries are being made. On the other hand, you know, I mean, Catullus got there first, you know, I mean, it's hard to think of anything more explicit than Catullus writing a blowjob. And, you know, in English, you know, we have this incredible gift of the fact that, like, all of our vulgar words for the sexual body were anointed in literature by Chaucer and Shakespeare. And, like, mm. you know, that is just ex- an extraordinary blessing for someone who's interested in writing about sex. And yet it's still the case that English literature has, at least a couple of times, 
forgotten how to write the sexual body and then, you know, felt like it was this new exciting discovery again, which is also, I don't know. I mean, I guess that's like a creating a space for the production of new pleasures when you feel like you're discovering something, even though Chaucer did it. The return of the repressed, of of course, absolutely. Absolutely. You could say a book like this hasn't appeared since Byron. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Or since the Canterbury Tales. That's a great, they should use that in their PR. (laughs) Um, There's something there also, Garth, I think about, part of why I think sometimes it is difficult to write about sex is because in sex, in the sexual encounter, there are so, and it's not, I want to be careful not to suddenly like flatten everyday life because there's a lot of, you know, valences inside of everyday life. But I think inside a sexual encounter, there's such a rapid series of negotiations between like, not just between the two people, two or more people, but between the individual themselves, right? So this kind of slippage between what I desire, what I can articulate as desire, what the reality of that actually is. So for example, there's like, I keep going back to Larissa Pham's piece, but it's just because it's so fucking highly quotable. It's so great. When she's writing about the protagonist when she says she wants him to be brutal, she only wants him to be brutal in a cinematic, delicious way. So there's this way, and this made me recall this, I was talking with, and this is going to be a little vulgar, but whatever, we're talking about sex is fine. I was talking with uh, Andrea Longshu a while ago, and we were talking about this phrase that kind of gets kicked around in like gay male circles about like, oh, I really want him to like wreck my pussy or like wreck my boy pussy, right? Or something like that. But the reality is that language invokes a kind of fantasy, but one that one usually does not want as a reality, right? Like none of us really want to be wrecked. We want the charge and the, the feeling of that, but not the reality of it. So it seems to me that part of what's happening also is that in the sexual encounter, we're constantly to kind of piggyback on what you were saying, Garth, we're discovering and rediscovering and then undiscovering the thing that we want, right? As if that could ever be some reducible thing. So I'm wondering if, uh, to pull this into a question for both of you, that kind of, um, the slippage between desire and reality that balances right on that razor's edge of what I want versus the reality of its realization. Like, how did you see that playing out across the stories in the collection? And when you guys also write sex, yeah, well, a lot of what you say, I mean, when I want to make an argument about sex as a kind of privileged site and the ways in which I think sex is a crucible of humanness, I mean, it is precisely because I think sex is not uniquely, but maybe almost uniquely, um, an experience in which the kind of interlocking series of contradictions that I think make up the human um, become visible and um, sort of uh, make themselves felt in a particularly acute way. Mm. Um, It seems to me just a fact of human existence that we are capable of and desire tenderness and cruelty, that we are capable and desire an affirmation of the self and an effacement of the self, that we want to live and we want to die. Um, that these, mm. that, you know, we desire to sort of be recognized as something and also we desire to be nothing. And that this is just part of the equipment of the human. 
And something that excites me about the kind of theatricality of kink and what can happen when you put a frame, when you kind of draw a magic circle around a piece of reality, um, which is what art does and which is also what a, a, a kinky encounter does. Hmm. And within that magic circle, you create a space where one can indulge in some of those um, impulses that we might think of as negative or negating impulses, like the desire to be wrecked Mm -hmm. in a way that is just shy of real existential peril. And that seems to me like one of part of the real usefulness of kink, that it creates a space in which we can um, indulge that aspect of humanness, which, as we know, if it is repressed, will sort of erupt in ways that are often catastrophic. Um, in a space where, you know, to create a space in which one can um, open oneself to that desire to be negated, to that desire to be wrecked. Mm-hmm. And then, yes, of course, I mean, you know, something that uh, one of the reasons that I find sex so endlessly fascinating for fiction is that sex is educative. That, I mean, desire, you know, when it comes to our desires, I think we are hugely mysterious to ourselves. I think we tell ourselves things about our desire that, in fact, we can't know. We subscribe to scripts that are radically impoverished in relation to the real scope of our desiring selves. And which are undone in sex, right? Like they're constantly undone and reworked. Well, yes, I mean, but I think also one of the things that can happen, because I I think it kind of depends on what kind of sex you're having. I mean, I think if you only have one kind of sort of tightly scripted, repetitive sex, you know, there's a way in which within that circle, something that can happen is that one can let go of some of those usual scripts and discover things about one's desire. One can discover and yeah. one can experience in pleasure in a kind of unexpected pleasure or unexpected excitement um, that can be educative about, you know, the self that like I can be turned on by things that I didn't know I could be turned on by. And that that's an important piece of information about who I am that might require me to radically revise my sense of myself. Like that seems like, I don't know, a gift and also a really exciting subject for a story. Yes, and, th- and that theatricality of the sexual encounter where, where we can play out the little death is, is uh, brought to the fore in Carmen Maria Machado's story. It's very much uh, right there before our eyes as the curtain rises and falls. Yeah, very bloody. Very bloody, <laughs> yes. Know, very bloody. And, and, you know, well, and just something that's really exciting about that story is that, I mean, when I read that story, um, which is the longest piece in the anthology and, you know, really is a journey as I experience it. Um, you know, there is a point at which it becomes genuinely impossible for me to discern where theatricality ends and reality begins or vice versa, you know, and where the sort of stage fake blood becomes real blood. And something that's exciting in that story is that it seems to me that you're forced constantly to revise your sense of what the stakes are. And that's really thrilling, you know, and this question mm. of, of, you know, just how dire are the existential stakes in that story and how close are we to horror at any moment. Precisely. And that too, of course, is, is very compatible with, with the sexual encounter. 
And speaking of blood, Aro, you, you mentioned earlier that you're, you're struggling with getting your character out of the room. And of, of course, part of that is just the recalcitrance of, of literary language. But part of it, uh, you let slip, is, is you're checking the news. So I'm wondering, what shadow did the last four years cast over this project, if any? Did the circumstances in which this, this anthology was gathered, did they somehow impact the anthology? Well, let's see. So I think I started thinking of this as a book in late 2017, and um, that was when Garth and I started talking. Um, so yes, of course, his... Um, I'm, I'm seven days to go, man. I haven't been saying his name the whole time. The bad orange man. Uh, <laughs> the, ba the bad orange man had a large and heavy shadow and it did cast a shadow on it as it's cast a shadow over um, so much of the past four years, four or five years. Um, but I will say it does just feel really exciting. I can't imagine that a single Republican would approve of this book, at least insofar as I, <laughs> I don't would know admit, that. Would, would admit. admit yeah. to oh, that's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did I hear admit? admit to. Would add Romney. Would add Romney this. Exactly. They wouldn't admit to loving the book, but in secret, um, they might they might have it around. But and I think I just think that. I, I do think very much of the book as being on the side of freedom, of being on the side of um, of inclusion, and of being on the side of love, um, and um, and and I just yeah, and so and so putting out this book um, in almost exactly four weeks um, as we're going through this absolutely this, this incredible upheaval as a country, um, it does it does feel a little extra satisfying. I'll say that. It also, in that way, is, uh, I kind of, as, as we wrap up here, the way that you guys talk in the introduction about kink being a space not for pathologization, right, but rather for processing of both joy and trauma. Like, do you see the kind of real social value of, you know, either kink practice or a kind of what we might say is a more engaged relationship to one's sexuality, right? One that is not like, it doesn't have the heavy albatross of shame or oppression on top of it, but rather which like helps one to discover something new. In other words, like how can we think about the political productivity of something like kink or in the you, to use the words from your introduction of taking kink seriously so um i would say you know not just that sort of shame and trauma are not simply albatrosses that that drag us down but instead that shame and trauma can be made into um something productive of things that we value, like sociality, pleasure, critique. You know, there is a long tradition of queer thinkers um, from Socrates to Tim Dean, who have articulated utopian social visions founded on Eros. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it does seem to me that SNM, one way of thinking about SNM is as a technology of transformation. And as I was saying before a little bit about the ways in which apparently signifying elements like a slap or someone spitting in your face 
can be placed into a new syntax or a new grammar that changes the meaning of those elements. It does seem true to me, you know, we are born into a world that we do not choose. We are born into a world that certainly for queer people um, is not accommodating of us, often actively desires our annihilation. And something that I think S&M can offer is a way to take something like stigma, something like a degrading word, a word like faggot, or um, a degrading gesture like spitting in someone's face and taking that and transforming it from simply a negating experience of violence aimed at my annihilation and turning it instead into an opportunity for the production of pleasure, an opportunity for the production of sociality and intimacy, for the production of community, Like that seems to me, you know, I I often say that I think queer people are geniuses of survival and that kind of transformation is one of our means of survival. So in that sense, you know, the kind of radical potential that I hear sort of haunting or hovering behind your question Hmm. and this idea that if everyone could just go out and have their kinkiest sex and, you know, be open to their most radical desires, would that be a force of social transformation and social good? And I would say, I think there's a complicated conversation to be had about that, but I will <laughs> place my bet on yes. So, yes also, to you, visions of utopian sexual sociality. I will also put a put a yes there, a very complicated yes. Um, I will I, I'd also extend this to um, admitting even to ourselves that we want anything at all, I think, can be incredibly complicated. Mm-hmm. Saying I want X is already to put oneself in a position of vulnerability, in a position of possible right. embarrassment. Mm-hmm. I also strongly believe that denying ourselves things our bodies want, especially if they're things that our bodies have wanted for all our lives or for years. Um, That is an act of tremendous violence against ourselves. Um, And it is an act of tremendous violence that so many people are engaged in every single day. And I think what you're saying, a lot of violence can arise out of that first violence um, that we enact upon ourselves. Absolutely. And um, that brings to mind a line from Alexander Chi's story in which uh, at the very end, he and the person with whom he had uh, an encounter have helped each other break out of a prison. And mm-hmm. of course, on the next day, they're, they're not as important to one another, but they'll always share that experience of, of helping each other break out. Well, thank you both, uh, Aro and Garth, for joining us and, and for um, discussing this book. I had promised myself I would avoid the word titillating. And I've done, <laughs> I've done very, very well. Thank you for your very beautiful questions. This was, it was really a joy to talk with you all. And I'm going to be thinking about that translation question for like a long time. (laughs) (laughs) We've been talking with Aro Kwan and Garth Greenwell, editors of the new collection, Kink. Thank you for listening to the LARB Radio Hour and to a special session of the LARB Book Club. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. That will help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. 
The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. The executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broughton. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotten. The publisher and editor-in-chief of the LA Review of Books is Tom Lutz.